Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Philosophy of Sex Welcome to The Philosophy of Sex, Long Play. I'm your host, Caroline Moreau-Hammond. This week, we're speaking with Janet Hardy from the sixth episode of season one, Hardcore Tenderness, Reinterpreting What We Think About Kink. Janet Hardy is the author and co-author of 13 books about alternative sexuality, including the groundbreaking bestseller, The Ethical Slut. She is also the founder of The Greenery Press, a publishing house based in California that specializes in books on BDSM and polyamory, with over 50 titles in print. Janet is an experienced BDSM practitioner, and she's been educating people from across the globe on how to engage in BDSM and polyamory for over 20 years. Much of Janet's work has contributed hugely to establishing a gold standard in behavior within BDSM and polyamorous communities. And while her work focuses on BDSM and kink, I believe her advice is applicable to anyone who wants to have fulfilling sexual relationships. In this episode, Janet and I discuss identifying kinks, ways to explore them, and how to communicate these to a partner. We also unpack what society often misunderstands about kink and its hidden powers. Janet is a wealth of knowledge and speaks with the level of frankness essential for great sexual communication. I can't recommend Janet and her co-author Dossie Easton's work more. Please enjoy our full interview. You tell this great story about how you spent a large part of the early portion of your life thinking that having an interest in spanking was sort of weird. Yeah, I, I didn't know that there was anybody in the world besides me who got turned on thinking about spanking. How could I? I was a, a young wife and mom living in a small city in California. I had no access to porn or workshops or any of those things. It took me a surprisingly long time to catch on that my interest in spanking was in fact sexual because I'd been thinking obsessively about spanking since my teens, probably sooner, probably earlier. And because women do not have that inborn barometer of when they're turned on, it's it's possible to stay in denial about that for a really long time, which I did. You know, I finally caught on. I'm, I'm not stupid. I'm just ignorant. So that was that. And then I also had to figure out that there were other people who had similar interests and that if I could find those other people, I would be able to do spanking in a way that worked for me morally, uh, ethically. It would be consensual. It would be all agreed to. It would be fun. And so I had to do both of those bits of information gathering before I could come to terms with my own interest. And of course, by then I was pushing 30 and married and raising a couple kids. So it was difficult. It was very difficult. Yeah. I mean, I had been married to my husband for, had to be a decade before I even told him mm. that this was a thing I thought about because it was really terrifying. Yeah. And what was the catalyst event that made you decide that this was something that you wanted to discuss and come forward with? There was not any one aha moment on that. You know, I didn't get struck by lightning. <laughs> I do remember there, there was a period of time in which I was teaching a class uh, that was a two-hour drive each way to go teach it. Mm. And so I was riding around by myself and the, the drive took me through a lot of orchards. And of course, orchards are all full of switches. You know, you just <laughs> see all these, 
all these bits of wood that you could hit people with. And so by the time I got to my class, I was usually pretty keyed up. And I remember uh, this bolt of clarity that came down. And what it said was, I'm not willing to spend the rest of my life not doing this. Mm. It was just like, you know, this is not acceptable anymore. Yeah. When I had that, that's about when I came out to my husband and we experimented some with playing with spanking and God bless him. He tried to give me what I wanted Mm. because he's a great guy. I I adore him, but it just wasn't working for him. Mm. Of course, if there had been a book like The Ethical Slut available to us back then, we might've been able to figure out a way to work it with outside partners, but there wasn't, we didn't know how to. Yeah. So we eventually wound up coming apart over that. We remained, there was a a rocky year or two in the beginning, but I still count him as one of my closest friends. Mm. You know, it would be a shame to throw away all those good years of raising our kids together and genuinely liking each other. Yeah. You know, he's as smart as I am, which most people are not. He likes the same kinds of books and things that I do. You know, I would be very sorry to lose him as a friend. And I was really glad that we didn't have to. Yeah, no, absolutely. Presumably there were really no resources available to you at that point. Not a thing. Um, In the book I'm working on now, which is called Slut and Sons, and it's about the years of coming out into myself sexually and also raising my sons, Mm. I have little sections that I call alternate realities where I imagine the path my life had taken if one thing had changed. Mm. And one, one of them is about Frank and I, who were at the time we were reading a lot of science fiction, so we went together in this in this fantasy to a science fiction con. Yeah. And of course, at a science fiction con, there's usually a heavy poly presence. Yeah. Uh, so we would have learned that this was possible and uh, how to do it. I think we would probably still be together as a poly couple mm. if, if we had been able to figure out how to work that. But mm. this was what we came apart in about 1987, 88, in there somewhere. Yeah. And there just was nothing. Yeah. And even if there were resources, it would have been a pretty big sort of social hurdle to try and cross as well, right? Like you were working against society at all, all levels, really. Yeah, I cannot imagine the conversation in which we explained that to his his folks, for example. That would have been been quite a conversation. But (laughs) So if we were to sort of talk about BDSM, how would you describe BDSM to someone that had no idea what it was? That's a task that nobody has ever done to my satisfaction. Uh, Like most sexualities, it's kind of amorphous with a lot of stuff out in the edges and some stuff closer to the center. Mm. But I would say any combination of consensual, intense sensation and or helplessness and or control. So you might have something like Spanking as intense sensation, uh, bondage as helplessness, domination and submission as control. I think that's a misapprehension that I hear a lot about BDSM is that if you're interested in one of those things, you must be interested in all of them. And that is not the case. BDSM does not have to include pain. It does not have to include bondage. It does not have to include control. People are allowed to order a la carte and pick the thing they like and not do the thing they don't like. And then, of course, the trick is to find somebody else whose desires are congruent enough that you can do things that you like and not do things that are anathema. You know, you may wind up doing some things that you feel so-so about, but you love them because your, your partner loves them. You know, you pick the ones that you like and you don't do the ones that you don't like. I have little to no interest in domination and submission. It just doesn't turn my crank, although I've certainly done it with partners who like it. But left to my own devices, I would stick with sensation and possibly with occasional bondage. But I'm really what I call an ecstatic masochist and ecstatic sadist, someone who does intense sensation for the sake of transcendence and achieving altered states of consciousness. I mean, a lot of people would associate spanking with dominant submission, right? Because there's an inherent power dynamic between the person spanking and the person receiving the spanking. There usually, but not always is. Um, You can just say, hey, spank me, I'm in a mood. And they can do it. And there doesn't have to be any overlay of power dynamic to it. 
a lot of people who are primarily into spanking come at it from a role play perspective of what people would call brat play when the person who wants to get spanked is acting out in some way and asking to get taken down. So that's not traditional DS either. It's a a different dynamic. And I think a lot of the time people who find the spanking community after they find the BDSM community are a little startled because that kind of brat energy is not generally looked on positively in the BDSM community. I love it personally. To me, it's it's very permission-giving if I know that someone acts out when they want that from me. It gives me permission to go ahead and take them down. My co-author, Dossie, is great at that. (laughs) But for other people, they want submissives to act submissive. They want them to be obedient. And so that brat energy can run completely afoul of traditional dominance and submission. So all of this, you know, it's not a monolith by any means. There's so many different ways to do BDSM. We haven't even talked about fetish, which is technically not BDSM, but with which overlaps so strongly with most practices that it pretty much is. And so fetish is a whole other factor. But if what you want is to dress yourself up in a corset and high-heeled boots and strut around in that, is that BDSM? Not, I don't know. There's always things on the edges of these things that may or may not be part of it. Yes, well, I think, you know, we do tend to have a tendency to want to label things and group them in a way that makes sense, right? Particularly when it comes to sexuality. I've obviously, when I emailed you, I asked you, what is a BDSM archetype? Can you kind of outline what these are and really, in reality, how useful are they, I guess, if there are always things at the fringes and always people that have kind of discrepancies in in their desires? I think it is worthwhile to look at BDSM as play with archetypes. It almost always is. A lot of people resist that idea because they think uh, playing with archetypes has to be uh, a theatrical role play, which, you know, I'm a big fan of theatrical role play. I love doing it, doing it with someone who's good is just a delight. But a lot of people are really uncomfortable with it. I still think they're playing with archetype. The bitch goddess archetype, the benevolent master archetype, the mischief maker archetype, which would be the brat scene that we were talking about earlier. There's a million of them and BDSM gives us a way to tap into them because they have a lot of heat behind them. You know, they become archetypes because they're things that we respond to vividly. And so when we go into doing BDSM, we are intentionally moving into that world of archetype and storytelling, whether it's overt or innate. It's interesting because often when it comes to BDSM, people sort of self-reported experiences might be kind of detached from what they're sort of doing in a way where people don't always want to acknowledge the reality of of what they're doing. Do you think archetypes can sort of help support people in navigating their relationship with BDSM? I think the first thing that has to happen along the journey into BDSM is recognizing that what you're doing has things in common with BDSM. You don't have to call it BDSM if that's weird for you. But a lot of people who do not think of themselves as kinky nonetheless like to do scratching and tickling and biting and um, giving and taking orders or holding your partner's hands down or all of these things that are at least BDSM adjacent. And I think people get in trouble when they want to pretend that what they're doing has nothing in common with BDSM because they don't know the things that BDSMers know about consent and negotiation. A male dom that I spoke to last week, his definition of of BDSM was that essentially it's anything that falls outside of vanilla sex. In his mind, it was the only way of defining it that could kind of capture the the breadth of, of practices that existed. But I mean, as you say, with fetish, for example, you know, in his mind, that would obviously fall within the category of BDSM. How do you see the difference between fetish and BDSM? And I know this is a big, big question. (laughs) I think fetish overlaps with BDSM very strongly, but I think it is entirely possible to do fetish. I mean, 
most often we see at least the common fetishes, which are leather and latex, um, high heels, that subgrouping of fetish. People associate them with BDSM for sure. I can't tell you whether they, quote, are BDSM or not, because uh, I don't think anybody can. It's just semantics. But are furries BDSM? I think probably not. Are loonies people who are into blowing up balloons? Probably not. There's a lot of fetishes out there that there are definitely fetishes, but they are not inherently BDSM. It makes complete sense. <laughs> the first loony I ever met many years ago was describing what he got from balloons and what he described was watching his mistress blow up a balloon and he said and when it pops my heart pops with it and that was so glorious because I I hadn't understood his kink at all and in that moment I got oh okay that's why it works for you and I love moments like that when I recognize I mean I'm not going to turn into a loony myself but at least I understand what one loony got out of it and I love that those moments of understanding. That's really lovely and I think it can be difficult because these things can be met with such judgment that actually having a conversation open enough to actually get to that point of understanding is is pretty rare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the people who are self-aware enough to understand what they're getting out of their BDSM. Um, a, that takes a few years. You're not, you're not going to be able to do it at first. And B, uh, a lot of people never get there. And, you know, you don't need to. You don't need to be me or one of the other people who makes their living um, explaining BDSM to the outside world. But I think the more self-awareness you can have about it, the better you can get at it because you know where the charge lies for you and you can arrange to get more of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, a little bit later in the conversation, I, I want to talk about, you know, sort of advice you have for, for when people do want to start taking those steps or, or how to manage when they recognize something in their self, how to go about exploring that. But before we kind of dig into some of those questions, I wanted you to give as best you can a sort of a definition of topping versus bottoming. I mean, I think for the type of audience that we will have. A lot of people will have heard these terms but won't kind of fully understand what they actually mean and entail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, topping and bottoming are terms borrowed from the gay male community. And in the gay male community, they have to do with who inserts what into who. So the penetrator is the top and the penetratee is the bottom, which can get a little confusing when you're talking about gay BDSM because the terms are vague there. You don't know whether you're talking about a penetration role or a play role. Uh, outside gay male BDSM, it tends to mean the top is the person who does and the bottom is the person who gets done to. Some people call it pitchers and catchers. There's an assumption with topping and bottoming, which varies from one community to another, that for many users, they imply uh, sensation and bondage, but not DS. Other people use them to cover the whole thing. So one of the problems with being a writer and teacher about alternative sexuality is all of this world is so new that we don't have hard and core definitions for our terms yet. They vary from year to year and from community to community. But that it, it's safe to assume that if someone says they're topping and they're not a gay man, that they probably want to be the person who is doing the doing and someone who says they're bottoming is the person who wants to be done to. To what extent do we need definitions of these things to have good power dynamics? My usual advice, which I repeat so often, is that verbs work better than nouns. I mean, as a writer, verbs work better than nouns, but also as a human being, being able to say, you know, I like getting spanked, but I don't like being tied with my hands behind my back. I like playing a little girl, but I don't like playing the submissive. All of those, that, that to me, that's much more useful information than I'm a top, I'm a bottom, I'm a dom, I'm a sub. I think the problem with nouns is that they start out descriptive, but they can very easily turn prescriptive, where you get into thought patterns like, well, I'm a top and tops don't do that. And no, I'm sorry. That's not a good way to arrange your sex life. You do the things that sound like fun to you and that sound like fun to the person you're with and screw the rule. I mean, if, if you 
aren't living up to whatever you think your role should be when you do this thing that's important to you. The problem isn't with you. The problem is with the role. No, and I think that's one thing, you know, when I read the the topping book and the bottoming book, something that surprised me was that it wasn't prescriptive, sort of in a good way. And it was yeah. really more about really celebrating the place that either the top or the bottom or whoever is kind of coming from. Yeah, not all scenes have to have a top and a bottom. You can have takedown scenes where people are fighting each other and you don't find out who the top or the bottom is until someone takes the other one down. Or you can have scenes where nobody is a top or a bottom and you're just messing around for fun, wrestling scenes. They don't have to be role-based. Midori, who is uh, an esteemed colleague, talks about BDSM as being, you know, like playing cowboys and Indians as a kid, except with adult rewards of sex and orgasms. And that's not far off. I mean, it can look dead serious while you're in it, but it is basically play. There's a reason we call it play. It's a symbolic reality like theater. And it can be any reality that you can conceive and find someone who wants to do with you. That's a much more liberating approach (laughs) and a much more approachable way of of talking about it, I think. I was uh, approached at a poly talk I gave a couple of years back by a young woman from a town a few hours from here that is more conservative than here. And she was there with her dom, and she said, can I ask you, is it okay for a sub to have two doms? And I said, hell yeah. You know, if, if they're both into it and you're into it, why on earth not? And she said, well, because all the doms where I come from tell me I can't. And I said, well, you get right on back there and tell them Janet Hardy said that, that you can, because you can do anything you want as long as it's working for you and it's consensual. If everybody's having a good time, don't let anybody tell you that you're doing it wrong, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. And I think this leads really well into the next question, which is what are some of the major misconceptions that exist about BDSM? And obviously there are far and many. (laughs) Oh, God, so many. That we're all abuse survivors is probably the one I run into most often. In fact, there have been numerous studies, none of which have shown any likelihood of a BDSM practitioner being more or less likely than anyone else to be an abuse survivor. We are people who talk about it more because we're people who talk a lot by and large, but no, it doesn't. I am an abuse, I am not an abuse survivor. My co-author Dossie is, and it doesn't seem to matter in terms of what roles we take or in terms of how heavy or light we want to play. It's just not a vector that determines where someone is in BDSM. Another is that it's inherently anti-feminist to do BDSM, never mind that it's often boy-boy or girl-girl or girl-over-boy play, that it reflects cultural dynamics that are inherently sexist. Yes, it doesn't reflect um, cultural dynamics that can be sexist or racist, if you play that way. But what it does is bring those to the surface where we're conscious of them and we can explore them for fun and then leave them alone at the end of the scene. I mean, a lot of our fantasies are formed around unhealthy power dynamics, owner and slave, whether it's pirate and victim, uh, whether it's uh, abusive older person and naive younger person. Yes, they are terrible dynamics and we don't want them in the world for real, but they turn us on. And so BDSM acts as a firewall so we can explore those marvelous, dirty, dark fantasies and not bring them into our day-to-day life. A really, really wonderful way of looking at it (laughs) because people do need safe spaces to explore these things within boundaries that work for them. Yeah, Dossier wrote at some length, I think in the topping book, about a scene we did when we were beginning to generate copy for that book, where it it was a set of roles that the two of us fall into very easily, where I'm the sadistic butch warden or headmistress or what what have you. And she calls it the girl in white, the sweet little innocent who's been confined unfairly, because that allows her to enjoy all these filthy things without feeling like she's a bad girl. So it's healing for her and it's healing for me. But what happened for her is instead of being her usual sort of mouthy, resistant type role, she fell into what she calls victimhood, 
where she felt like what I was doing to her was wrong and unfair and terrible. And what it did for her, and I wish she were here to talk about this because it's really her story. There was a point in her life when she had escaped from, from an abusive relationship while pregnant and living on the streets of the hate in San Francisco. And she really was a victim. She was living off free yogurt from the gleaners. And it allowed her to experience that again with a container around it. So, And she said it felt luxurious to be able to fall back into that victim role with it having no actual consequences. Yeah, and with you actually having a degree of power in it, right, because in, in that moment it's your choice. It's not something that's being inflicted upon you. Exactly. So one word in the scene would have been over. Uh, but because we trust each other to go into dark places, uh, we were able to play it all the way through. We've had numerous scenes together that have gone into very dark places for both of us. And we read each other very well. I mean, you know, we've been lovers and play partners off and on for 30 years now. We read each other well and we trust each other deeply. And so we can go to these dark places where I can go into my bully, my cruel person, my juvenile delinquent, my criminal, all of, all of those really dark archetypes. And she can go into the, the sweet victim that deserves none of this but is having it anyway. And I, in real life, accommodating to a fault. I'm a pleaser. So for me, it's very exciting to go into these dark, non-pleasing places and have them expected. And similarly, Dossie is a very strong-minded and independent person. So for her, it's a great joy to be able to not be that, to be tiny and helpless and acted on and passive because she knows I'll take care of her. And that's a beautiful way of putting it, I think. I can definitely relate to, to Dossie in that, in that space. I think one thing you kind of alluded to before, which I want to unpack a little bit further, is this line between sort of fantasy and reality and understanding what should remain as fantasy and what should potentially be kept out of the realm of reality, i.e. when you leave the bedroom, things end. How would you kind of unpack that relationship and what advice would you give people for, for navigating that? So the first thing I would want to note is I think the biggest single mistake I see novices undergo when they first come into the scene is wanting it all now. So they've read a few books and looked at some porn and they think that unless they're doing full on 24 seven chattel slavery, that they're not real. And Oh my God, people get themselves in so much trouble with that one. <laughs> um, you know, baby steps. It is not too much to suggest that you try one new thing at a time. If you've never done any BDSM before, then it might be that tying their hands is where you get to go the first time. And that way you can move into learning what you like, learning what you don't like in a gradual way. And if something goes haywire, you'll have a pretty good idea of what set it off. And you can go back and, and retool that and do it in a way that doesn't set things off. The Philosophy of Sex is brought to you by Becoming. Becoming offers something quite different from your typical online sex store. We combat the frustration of trying to find a great sex toy by producing personalized recommendations. Kinda like a sex toy concierge or HelloFresh with dildos. We only stock the best of the best. So whether you're starting out or adding to your collection, take our quiz, tell us what gets you off, what you're curious about trying, and we'll deliver a personalized selection of toys to your door. Pleasure is for everyone. So visit becoming.me. Becoming spelt B-E-C-U-M-I-N-G. Back to the episode. Another sort of, I guess, misconception that I wanted to unpack was obviously that BDSM always involves physical pain. I mean, you've already alluded to the fact that it doesn't. But why do you think that this misconception has kind of emerged? It's, it's the one that you can see from the outside. If you can watch a couple doing a heavy DS scene, it's going to look like a couple. 
you know, you don't know what the orders are, what the commands are, what the limits are. So you may not be able to tell that they're doing DS at all from the outside. It might be very intense and deep trance work for them from the inside, but uh, as an onlooker, you, you can't tell. Whereas if someone is getting smacked, you can tell. <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of noise and they yell and it's it's pretty easy to see what's going on. Bondage at this point, plain old, the word I want to say is vanilla bondage, which is kind of a, a contradiction in terms, but nonetheless, uh, light bondage is so commonplace these days that most people don't even think of light bondage as kinky anymore. It's just one of the things you explore when you have a new partner and you're, and you're becoming sexual, as you see, if either of you likes to be tied down or held down. So I think for people who have the need to say, yeah, I'm vanilla, I don't, this is what those other weird BDSM people do, pain is often that boundary between what we like to do and what they like to do. Never mind that they might enjoy scratching or biting or hair pulling, because that's what vanilla people do. I, I think for a lot of vanilla people, the prospect of discovering their interest in BDSM is a very fraught one. They may or may not ever get there, but in, along the way, they are probably going to um, run into some resistances because they want to have a clear boundary between their sex and kinky sex. Whereas, in fact, a lot of sex has kink elements to it without being something that practitioners think of as kinky. Yeah, it's almost like BDSM has a bit of a PR problem more than anything else. It kind of does. It, it, it's gotten a lot better uh, in the years that I've been doing this, but yes, it still does. Do you have any ideas about how to make that better? That's <laughs> yeah, what I've been doing all my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, if I knew something else I could do, I'd do it. Um, I think, you know, for those of us who are experienced practitioners and secure in that we wouldn't lose our jobs or our families or our kids if we came out. I think it's great if we can come out because the more people can see that, yeah, that person's into BDSM, but they mow their lawn, they take good care of their kids. Uh, they brought me over a casserole when my mother was sick. You know, that's what gets people accepted is being good people in, in spite of whatever weird shit they get up to into the bedroom. Yeah, it's, it's true. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a bit about what makes for a great power dynamic in a BDSM relationship? Consciousness, I think, is the dictating factor. I think what you don't want to do in, uh, in a power dynamic is accept unconscious directions. Um, if you have this picture in your head that you're a female dominant and that means you do blah, whereas doing blah actually does nothing for you. Letting yourself do it because you think you ought to is a pretty good formula for a really shitty scene. So being aware of what turns you on and what simply doesn't, what turns your partner on and what simply doesn't, and where the charge lies for you in the things that do turn you on. I talked a little earlier about a brat scene versus a conventional DS scene. Uh, then you can see how a mismatch in that regard would be a problem in that a DS type dominant confronted with a brat is going to feel like they really don't, the, the, the brat doesn't want to be in the scene and does not respect their authority and all of that. And the scene's going to come unglued and probably in a pretty ugly way. But if you know that pushing against resistance is a turn on for you, then you can find a way to play that scene that in a way that keeps you feeling sufficiently respected to stay with the scene, but also gives them a chance to act out and be naughty so that they both of you can get your need met. I think the other thing in any kind of power dynamic is to be aware that bottoms get to have needs and tops the need to be nurtured get to have weaknesses. Our, our fantasy doms have no weaknesses. They are all-powerful and all-knowing. Uh, we don't get to play with the all-powerful and all-knowing folks because they don't exist. So it's best to acknowledge going into it that your dom is a human being and sometimes feels shitty and needs your help, sometimes just doesn't feel domly and can't go there and might need to be taken care of for a while. Similarly, 
the fantasy is of an infinitely obedient submissive, regardless of where they are at the time and what their needs are at the time. And trying to enact this bottomless submissive with perfect obedience role is a guarantee that whatever the needs are that brought you in in the first place are probably not going to get met. So you need to make space to acknowledge each other's humanity and take care of each other's needs inside or outside the scene. It's a good point. And it's interesting because to do these things, you have to have quite a high degree of self-awareness, but also emotional intelligence to actually be able to interpret how someone else is feeling, even when they're verbally communicating with you. Do you have any tips or advice or thoughts around how you can kind of identify that ability in someone else? I mean, obviously, if you're questioning it, (laughs) that's probably a good sign in and of itself. One of my aphorisms is if you're in a strange city and want to find someone to play with, look for a martial artist. Because as a rule, they read energy really well and play with it really well. Probably the same also true of a a serious yoga person. A a lot of what's going on in BDSM is stuff we don't have instruments to measure and don't really even have words to, to describe. In BDSM, it mostly gets called energy, which is about as vague as you can be. But that ability to read the vibe, react to it, to trust one's intuition, to know when not to trust one's intuition, to keep the energy high and to conduct it like a symphony with breaks, uh, dips, and peaks. Those are things that people learn in other fields that involve energy transfer, which is to say martial arts, yoga, tantra, all of those. If someone kind of found themselves in a, in a dynamic where that sort of seemed to be the case and things sort of potentially took a turn, what advice would you have in that context apart from the obvious of get out, walk away? Well, the question is, of course, whether it's just a matter of a scene having gone pear-shaped, which happens to everybody, um, or whether there is an abusive dynamic. And even if there is an abusive dynamic, it can be recovered from if people are willing to do so. But mostly what it's going to be is someone misread someone, someone made an assumption that they shouldn't have made. Um, And in the absence of a genuine concern about physical safety, it's a really good idea to try to have what is a very difficult conversation about this, this scene didn't work for me. I felt X, Y, and Z. Uh, In particular, when you did A, B, and C, uh, I was really frightened. Uh, We need to talk this over so it doesn't happen again. That's a hard conversation to start and a harder conversation to hear because we all want to feel like God. We all want to feel like the perfect Tom or the perfect sub. But when something goes wrong, which it will, I mean, that's not an if, that's a when. We need to learn how to talk it through and take care of each other while we do that's just how life works, right? Things go pear-shaped. You, you have conversations and you deal with it and then do better next time. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you can't change the past. That is one of the truest things I know about life on the planet is the past is the past and there's not a thing you can do to fix it. All you can do is try to make the future work better. And so there's a limited utility to saying this, is, this was my fault and this was your fault. A more useful conversation is, wow, this went wrong. Let's not even talk about whose fault it was. Let's talk about how to make it not happen again. Yeah. So I have a question here, which is, how do you know if you're into BDSM? And the reason I wanted to ask that is obviously because even in your own journey, you talked about how you kind of had this inkling, but it it took you a while to actually kind of work out, okay, this is what this is and this is what it means to me? Well, for a lot of people, it's their fantasies that guide them into it, as it was for me. Uh, And that usually happens either from earliest memory, which it was for me, or at puberty, or in some point in adulthood, possibly when you hit your 30s or 40s and you've had all the vanilla sex you want and it's not doing it for you, and, and you start to think about what might spice it up a bit, and hey, presto, there's a BDSM fantasy. But other people 
they find out when they have a partner who wants to try it and they try it with their partner and it's like, oh, oh, yeah, this is hot. I want to do more of this. So there's all kinds of ways to find out that you're into BDSM. One is to look really closely at your fantasies. I met one woman who swore to me she didn't have sex fantasies. I said, what are you thinking about in the moment before you come? And I saw the flesh creep up her face. (laughs) And she said, oh, that. I said, yeah, that. Um, So pay some attention to that. And, you know, some of the early Nancy Friday books, My Secret Garden and so on, that are all women's sexual fantasies can be useful. Or any book of fantasies, or for that matter, a porn anthology, to look at where your turn on is. And that may take some thought because on one hand, the turn on might be the physical act of a flogging. On the other hand, it might be the power dynamic of a flogging, or it might be the chance for catharsis of a flogging. Um, It's really, you know, you're obviously going to start with the idea that a flogging is a, a thing that turns me on, but what about it is the thing that turns you on is the next question. Because once you know what the underlying dynamic is that turns you on about it, then you can find ways to get more of that, even if the core fantasy is impractical. Yeah. If someone's identified that they have a a particular fantasy or, or want to try a certain thing, what advice would you give for them to actually begin exploring that? You've got obviously very direct experience where you had to take a fantasy to a partner and deal with the reaction to that <laughs> yes. when, you, when you very much don't know what their reaction is going to be. What advice do you have for navigating that and kind of, I guess, overcoming the the fear, the anxiety, the self-consciousness of actually sharing those fantasies? These days with so much good information available in print and on the internet, you can leverage that. Say, you know, hey, look at this story. It really turned me on. Tell me what you think about it. That's a pretty low barrier to telling someone. It's a way of getting the fantasy out so both of you can look at it without having to actually say the words yourself, which can be very, very difficult to stammer out those first few words of, I would really like to be tied up. Instead, look at this story about someone getting tied up. Tell me if you find any turn on it. So if I were doing that all over again, the coming out process, that's what I would like to be able to do. At the time, the only access I had to any kind of erotica was a magazine that was out back then called Penthouse Variations. It was a companion volume to Penthouse Taboo, I think it was. This a little six by nine magazine full of reader stories about various kinky things they had done. That was all I could get. I was in Sacramento, California, one bookstore that carried anything like that. So I was buying it every month and reading it, and I wound up writing for it a time or two. But if I had thought to show that to my ex-husband, unfortunately, I discovered it after he and I had already kind of come to a parting of the ways. But if I had had that to show him, we could probably have done some pretty good talking about it. Yeah, I like the idea of taking a resource that is kind of outside of yourself and bringing it in as opposed to making it quite personal between the two of you, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It, it it has fewer burdens of expectation, for one thing. There's a big difference between look at this and tell me if it turns you on and do this to me. Exactly, yeah, yeah. That's a very different place to approach it from. You've written a whole book for people who have a partner that is kinky or a family member that's kinky and how to kind of treat them in response to that or react to that to kind of flip what we were just talking about. What advice do you give to to people who have a partner that is kinky or that wants to try a certain thing to actually support them through the, the process of exploring that? And obviously that might be something that they're into or something that they're not into. And in both cases, how can you be supportive of that? Well, I did a book a couple of years ago. It's actually a new edition of the first book I ever wrote called The Sexually Dominant Woman. And it's written primarily for women, of course, but it is an entry-level guide to exploring various kinds of kink. I think most men would get quite a bit out of it too. And if you look at it, you'll see at the end, I give some sample scenes. And what I have is a scene with 
a body harness for bondage and a scene with a hand spanking for spanking and a scene with some giving of commands for DS. Very, very light scenes. That is an appropriate level to start with if you've never done this before or if you're working with a partner who's never done this before. If you try to get heavy during the first scene, it's almost guaranteed to go haywire. And once in a while, you'll strike lucky and you'll have a partner who can go as far as you can right away. Not often. Yeah, interesting. There, there's an old episode of Ally McBeal that if I were doing sex education at the college level, I would show this freaking show because there's two fantasies going on in it. One is that Ally has a fantasy about kissing one of her female colleagues. And the other is that one of the other women at the law firm has a spanking fantasy. And it is an object lesson in how you do and don't do something like that. With Allie's fantasy, she talks to the colleague. They talk it over for a long time. They try kissing. They have an after meeting where they say, well, that was interesting and I didn't hate it, but I don't think I need to do it again. And that's that. The colleague who wants to get spanked, her boyfriend finds out about it waits until she's not paying attention and yanks it, yanks her across his knee and goes after her with a hairbrush. Yeah, a, hairbrushes suck. Hair, hairbrushes hurt a lot there, not beginner toys. But mostly she's furious. You know, it hurt a lot. She wasn't ready for it. It wasn't what she wanted. It had no context. I, I really think whoever wrote that episode wrote it as an object lesson in, in how to and how not to approach a fantasy. <laughs> I'll have to check it out. I can't remember that specific episode, but I'm definitely going to have a search. I'll, I'll look it up for you. It's really good. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> and what about people that want to come out to their families or, or friends? What advice would you have for them? First of all, a little self-examination, which you note comes up frequently in this discussion. Uh, why do you want them to know? Do you just want to freak them the hell out? Often, you know, freaking the mundanes is a blast, but it's not really kind and it's not really helpful. Um, if they don't have a reason to know what you like to get up to in bed, then don't tell them. There's no reason that they should know, know that. If it's become an important part of your life and you've been showing up at Mardi Gras to march with the leather contingent, then yeah, you're going to have to come out to some people because uh, they're going to find out whether you want them to or not. And I would give them the basic information, maybe give them a copy of When Someone You Love is Kinky, and let them sit with that for a while. And if they have questions, they can come to you and ask you. But giving them too much information is not fair to them. You know, would I want to know that one of my kids was in a BDSM relationship? I would want to know that, that they were in a relationship like that. I would not want to know what they were doing in bed. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't want to share they've been incredibly patient with their mother writing books about what I get up to in pen but yeah yeah that's part of being my kid and you know if they wanted to write books about their sex lives I would read them other than that I mostly don't want to know from a parenting perspective how have you I mean obviously you're in a very unique situation where you are writing about these things very publicly it's your life it's it's your life's work how have you kind of navigated that with your children? I mean, obviously you're writing about that right now. Yeah. Yeah. And the original plan for that book was for the three of us to write it together because they both write and make art as well, but they both have projects of their own. So I'm doing it myself and, you know, they can look at it as it goes and I'll ask them for a forward when the time comes, which is not going to be anytime soon. But, you know, there, there was no way I could hide that part of my life from them. It's too central to my life. I was very careful before they turned 18 not to put anything in their faces. If you look at, I think the only book that still has my old pen name on it is When Someone You Love is Kinky, but everything I wrote before they turned 18 was under a pen name, Lady Green for the Sexually Dominant Woman book and uh, uh, Catherine List for the BDSM books. But really, you know, I had my office set up in the dining room of the house we were living there. I remember the day when I looked around after having a conversation with one of my kids in my office, and there were page proofs for a book about vaginal fisting strewn all over the floor. And this was supposed to be the kid that I was not out to. <laughs> it, it was not. By the time I came out to each of them after their 18th birthday, it was a rousing chorus of duh. And they both helped me out at the press back when I was running the press. They worked um, 
street fairs and so on with me, tabled with me at Folsom and so on. So I don't know what either of their kinks might be. I don't want to know unless they need me to know for some reason, but I do insist that they be respectful of mine and they are. Yeah. And I think also to have a mother that is kind of owning her sexuality and and things like that, that's rare. I'm sure that that has probably benefited them in in a range of ways as well. Well, I I must brag a little. Uh, My mom, who is no longer with us, um, was a marriage and family counselor, and she used to have copies of my books for sale in her office to clients that wanted to explore poly or kink. That's fantastic. (laughs) That sounds like it went as as well as it probably could. My, my dad had a much harder time. It took him quite a while to come to terms with this. He did eventually. I wrote a piece for Slut and Sons, the book I'm working on now, in which I was up in Seattle, which was near where he lived, uh, to do a reading from Best Sex Writing 2010, which I had a piece in that was a piece about gender and female genitals with perhaps a little bit more information about fisting than most people would like their fathers to have. But he insisted on coming with me to the reading and sitting in the audience and listening to this incredibly smutty fisting piece. And he was fine with it. After he died last year, I was cleaning out his bookshelves and found a copy of the book on his shelves, which I had not bought. He went out and bought it because it had my piece in it. So we we came a good place, but it took upside of a decade before he got totally okay. That's amazing, though. It's a great outcome in the end, obviously. It really was. I couldn't have asked for better. Yeah, yeah. It was a little amusing because my younger sister came out as a lesbian, and that turned out to be a problem uh, for his wife, my, my dad's wife, and because he loved his wife for him as well. And then the next year, while he was still getting over my sister being a lesbian, I came out as kinky, poly, and bi in rapid succession. And she still thanks me for it occasionally because it really took the heat off of her. There is one final question that that I wanted to ask you about. It might be a bit outside the the remit of the episode, but I think it's something that's come through and other people that I've spoken to quite strongly. So it's something that I kind of want to start exploring now, even if it's something that I do in in a separate episode. But that is really the relationship between Tantra and kink, transcendence and kink, sort of mysticism and kink. Obviously, that's a huge part of your kink practice, your BDSM practice. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, Dossie and I did a whole book called Radical Ecstasy about that very topic. And I, I don't think most people start there in their practice. I think most of them come into it in the ways we talked about earlier in terms of coming to terms with a kink for BDSM. And then when they've been playing for a while, they discover that they're having these amazing, ecstatic, altered experiences, and they start seeking those out. We also see a certain number of people who come to it via neo-pagan practice, where they do something like a flogging or a ball dance or a hook pull and realize that there's something amazing for them there and go back into consciously seeking mind-altering kink experiences. My personal belief, and take this with however many grains of salt you need it, is that ecstasy is in the air around us. This is ecstasy, the experience, not ecstasy, the drug. And that we spend most of our lives fencing it out uh, because it's impossible to function as a human being in a very intellectual world when, when you're swimming around in ecstasy. They're antithetical. But what happens during BDSM or during Tantra or during, uh, during other practices of that kind is that your brain is so busy that it forgets to keep the boundary up. And so all of a sudden you're out there in ecstasy for a little while. And then you come back. You know, we're not meant to stay out there forever when we're still alive. I'd like to think that we get to go there permanently once we're died. But um, it's astonishing. You stress the body or the brain in whatever way turns you on. And once your body or your brain is so occupied with whatever you're doing that you forget to notice that there's a difference between you and the universe, then you get to fly. Um, it's not like anything else. It's 
I've gone there with Tantra. I like BDSM better. I think it gets me there more reliably and more safely and faster. But there's all kinds of ways to get there. You don't have to do BDSM if that's not your thing. I've heard marathon runners describe something that sounds the same to me. It's just stressing the body in a way that you can't keep the ecstasy out anymore. Yeah, it's a nice a nice way of articulating it. Obviously, earlier we were talking about sort of consciousness and, and that being a really key component to having healthy dynamics in a BDSM relationship. Do you think that Tantra as a practice can help you develop that? I think it can. I don't think it always does. Um, much depends on who's teaching you. A lot of uh, Tantra practitioners are very prejudiced about BDSM, or they don't get it that BDSM is climbing the same pyramid up the other side, and they get startled when we turn out to be adept. But if you find someone who is teaching kink-positive Tantra, uh, the best-known person now is my friend Barbara Corellis, who wrote a book called Urban Tantra, and who you should have on this show, by the way. She'd be great, um, if you haven't already. Yeah, I've, um, um, I've contacted her, because Urban Tantra changed my life. <laughs> she is awesome. Yeah, she, she Barbara rocks. So if you can find a teacher like that who does not see BDSM as antithetical to the process of Tantra, then they are gold and you should learn learn from them because there's amazing shit to be learned. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. What is aftercare and how do you sort of define it? What parameters do you put around it? If you If you go back to that moment I discussed a moment ago of losing the boundaries between yourself and the world, Aftercare is a strategy for getting them back because you're really raw when you finish a scene. And that goes for doesn't matter whether you're topping or bottoming. You have let go of a lot of the executive function that keeps you safe in the real world. And you are incredibly vulnerable and skinless. And so aftercare is a process for coming back into your body and being able to function again after a scene. What it looks like for most people is a lot of snuggling and cuddling and rehydration and something to keep your blood sugar back up and just generally cherishing each other while, while your skin is down, because that's kind of why you did this. You might as well enjoy it and be with your partner and feel what it feels like to be that unguarded for a little while before you have to go back to being guarded. One of the most blessed things any top ever did for me was back uh, back when I was still in the Bay Area and I had just broken up uh, out of a very long-term, very close relationship, live-in relationship. And every scene I bottomed to, whether it was light or heavy or playful or whatever, I would wind up melting down. I just couldn't not. I was carrying too much grief uh, to not do that. So I did a scene with a friend of mine at a party and I melted down predictably and what he did, God love him, is we finished the cuddling stage. And then he perceived that I needed to go home, which I did. And he got me up on my feet and walked me out. And you can't see me gesturing here, but he had his arm behind and above my shoulders and his other hand out in front of me. So he was protecting me from the world because I knew everybody there and they wanted to come up and say, hey, nice scene, or I've got a book to tell you about or whatever other inappropriate thing they were going to say. And he wouldn't let that happen. He walked me out of there as sheltered as he could make me to where I felt safe again. And it was perfect. It was the most gorgeous aftercare. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, and, and I guess it is just about creating a, a sense of safety for the other person, right? Yep. And that goes for both of you. In the topping book, uh, Das and I talk about a scene we did together, which was the first time I went into one of my really criminal bad male persona with her. And afterwards, I was just wrecked. Uh, I had been this awful person for the duration of the scene. I'd been saying things I didn't know I had in my head. And I really needed a huge amount of reassurance that we were still okay, that she wasn't going to see me as that person outside that play space. And so we went upstairs together to get something to eat. And when we got there, I just plumped down at her feet and said, would you just pet me for a little while, please? And we kind of sat there for an hour or two with her just petting me and reassuring me that we were okay. 
So it's not just bottoms that need that kind of aftercare. It's tops too. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point not to skip over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when you agree to top someone, you're agreeing to let the parts of yourself that are not good in the real world come out to play. And you need to get back. You need to know you can get back. You need to know that you're not a bad person for doing that. So good bottoms give aftercare too. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's good. All right. Well, I feel like I could ask you questions for a very long time. <laughs> well, there are more days you can have me back yeah, later on. Exactly. Podcast is further along. Yeah. No, I'd I'd love to do an episode on poly and all all of the things that there are to discuss in relation to that as well so yeah perhaps perhaps at a later stage that would be good if we're ever allowed to get on airplanes again maybe i'll come back to yes, I miss yes. <laughs> a big thank you for listening to the philosophy of sex and a big thank you to my guest janet hardy you can find us on Instagram at becoming.me and visit our site for tailored sex toys and personalized packs delivered to your door. Feel free to like or subscribe to the podcast. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcho, who edited and wrote the music. <laughs>